Have you ever reached out and grabbed a hold of the rearview mirror in your life and looked in that rearview mirror and said, well, it's good that I don't do that anymore? Do you know what I'm talking about? One of those things that might be a habit, it might be a mindset, it might be a way of living that once defined who you were. But through some type of change, the transformational change and growth, something has happened in your life that has changed what you look at when you look forward instead of looking back. Today we're going to be in Galatians, as we've just talked about. We'll look through this journey that should resonate with that statement. That statement of, I don't do that anymore. For all of us, life is a series of chapters in our life. where We have different seasons of life, different moments, different times along the way where we're going to have highs and lows. We're going to have uh, trials and triumphs. We'll have each of these moments that shape who we are. And as we look in the rearview mirror, you'll look and you'll say, well, I'm glad that I don't do that anymore. My name is Pastor Milo, and for many of you we've met, but for some of you we haven't met yet. You may be watching online and we haven't interacted yet. We want to give you that opportunity. As Brian said a few minutes ago, there's a connection card there in the pew in front of you. Writing your name down in an email address, email address and dropping it into the box is enough to get a conversation started. So if we don't shake hands after the service, please do that. I'd love the opportunity to be able to follow up with you today. We're in a fall sermon series we just started last week, and it's called No Other Gospel. Today I'm going to be covering uh, chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 10. We'll look at this life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, His life is one of radical transformation. You probably know that. Uh, But this statement would define his life as well. I don't do that anymore. He was once a persecutor of Christians, and he becomes this passionate advocate for the sake of the gospel. Is the shift in his life, this change where he was seeking the approval of men, he tells us. And now he has this unwavering commitment to Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to give you five modern day takeaways, is what I hope to be able to do. Uh, five modern day takeaways where you would say, I don't do that anymore. There's no more people-pleasing. There's no more attention-seeking. There's no more destructive behavior. There's no more Lone Ranger Christianity. And we'll kind of put it all together with this concept of there will be nothing less that would identify a Christ follower than more grace. That's where we're going today. So as we dive into the text, let's not just look at and look for information of what we learn about the life of the Apostle Paul, but look at his behaviors and look at how he's approaching these things. And we look at our own life and be able to say, what is it in my life that I should be looking in the rear view and say, I don't do that anymore. What changes will bring us closer to the way that God has intended and created for us to be. So let's get started in Galatians chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles there, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, we're going to look at Paul's motives and Paul's message. Paul's motives and Paul's message, beginning in verse 10. Here it is. For I am now seeking, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Paul is addressing his motives and his message here. As he is talking to the Galatian believers, there is certainly some concern that is there about his motives. This is like a phone call that you heard in the kitchen when you were growing up as a kid, when your mother is talking to the neighbor down the street, and they're arguing back and forth about something. You never actually know what the neighbor is saying. In this text, we don't know exactly what the neighbor or the, uh, what the questions or the concerns are, but the half of the conversation that we are hearing is that Galatian believers are questioning Paul's motives. Further, they are going so far to say they are questioning Paul's apostleship altogether. So from their point of view, they are looking at the apostle Paul and they're just calling him a fanboy of the gospel. They are looking at his life and they're saying, well, he is not part of the the disciples that were there with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And now he's going around and he is planting churches in the name of the Messiah. But he is telling Gentiles that they don't have to be circumcised. He is telling Gentiles that they don't have to keep the feasts. And so these these, uh, Judaizers, as we are seeing them called here in Scripture, they've gone out and they're going to make sure that the Galatian churches, that they are going to set the record straight. That Paul might claim to be an apostle, but he's not really one. That Paul may claim to preach the gospel, but he's not really preaching the gospel because it's only secondhand information that he got from those true apostles. And because of that, his version is seriously flawed. And as you might expect, Paul is not pleased with this. So these Judaizers, they could not attack the gospel that Paul is preaching without attacking him and so this attack becomes very personal they are assaulting paul's character they're alleging that paul's conversion had not changed him for the better but that had changed him for the worse actually and that his message was actually motivated by a desire to win man's approval rather than a desire to please god paul's response he looks in the rearview mirror and says i don't do that anymore Our modern day takeaway, the first one, as I told you, is this. No more. No more people pleasing. In verse 10, what we see, Paul acknowledges the dilemma that was there of people pleasing. He says this. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is acknowledging that, yes, there was once upon a time in his life that pleasing people, having people respect him, that there was that he was a spokesman of God, that this was a driving force in his life. But now something is different. The Apostle Paul says, just as much as Peter is saying, because I have seen the risen Christ, and it is he, not mere man, who has sent me to preach his name. So Paul says, I don't need man's approval. My gospel is true because it's just as true as the gospel that Peter is preaching because he didn't learn it from mere man either. Verse 12, I did not receive this from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it directly through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is thoroughly convinced that the gospel that he is sharing is not made or was not part of a human concoction of any sort did not originate in man's mind, but it actually came out of God's heart. So the implication here is that the Judaizers are the ones. They're the ones who have actually adapted and adjusted the gospel so that it would fit into their own way, into their own proud inclinations. 
by adjusting the gospel, they were actually able to make it true that new Christians would have to be circumcised. By adjusting the gospel, they would have to require new Christians to be able to put all the pressure they possibly could that new Christians would live out Old Testament law, even though they were not living out themselves the Old Testament law. Paul is saying that the Judaizers, they are the ones who are people pleasers, not Paul. And Paul's experience prompts us. I hope that it challenged you to consider, think about this morning, about people pleasing in your own life. Where does it that people-pleasing causes us to water down the gospel or seek to adjust or change or compromise your convictions on the gospel and dilute the message that is actually supposed to be shared? We recognize that, that seeking human approval causes us to dilute things, and it comes at a high price. It distances us from the full power of the grace of God. If our gospel is diluted, if it is far away from, from a sharp edge of what the gospel is intended to be, then we don't need the grace. As we look at Paul's testimony on life transformation, then it challenges us to look at our own lives, to have self-reflection of our own. Where is it that we have allowed human approval to, to trump over God's approval? Are there areas where you've compromised your convictions? Are there areas where you have chosen and allowed fear to make decisions for you? How is it that fear is holding you back in your faith? Because consider this. Think about how difficult it actually must have been for Paul to stand up to his peers. For Paul to actually take a stand for the sake of Gentiles of all people. Those who are not part of the Jewish faith, not part of the Jewish tradition. And he is going to stand up for them in the face of his Jewish peers. But Paul tells us 2,000 years later, if we prioritize God's approval over man's approval, it is there that we will find freedom. It is there that we will be able to find our identity, our purpose, our security in him. And in that new we grab a hold of it, we will find we'll be liberated from the sin or the burden of pleasing others. Paul asks this rhetorical question at the beginning. He says, am I motivated by people pleasing? He says, no. He said, I don't do that anymore. Let's continue on. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. We look at Paul's conversion and his transformation. He's going to give us the story behind it. Verse 13, for you have heard of my formal life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. When he who had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son, capital S, his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away, went to a different land, this land of Arabia. And I returned again later to Damascus. So as we look at 13 through 17, we see his conversion. We see this remarkable story that we see it many times in the New Testament. He goes from being this persecutor of Christians to becoming this passionate advocate for the sake of the gospel. So at some level, Paul, as he is persecuting 
Christians, he is doing it, Saul in those days, he is doing it in a manner that, that garners the approval of others. That is part of the reasoning behind that. It says here he is one of the most rigorous of the Pharisees of his day. So Saul, which was his name before, was out ravaging the church. He spent his free time throwing men and women into prison because they were uh, pursuing the gospel. He's this young hero for the case. Uh, he's working so hard in this that they are, they are raising him up and giving him promotions because of his zealous efforts. He has reached a certain level in the pharisaical traditions inherited from the fathers. They loved what they were seeing in this young ruler. He was noteworthy as to how hard he was working. If you've read from Acts chapter 6, the pre-conversion Paul, his name is Saul, pre-conversion Paul, pre-Damascus Road Paul, this young, this up-and-coming Pharisee, we see him there. We see him holding the cloaks, holding the jackets of the angry mob so that they would be able to go and, and murder innocent Stephen, that they would stone him to death. Isn't that the picture of someone who is driven in every single way by the attention of others? Paul says, that may have been true about me before, but I'm not who I was. I don't do that anymore. So if our first modern takeaway was no more people pleasing, our second modern day takeaway is this. No more. No more attention seeking. The reason Paul gives us this story, gives us his testimony of his pre-conversion life, is to show us how utterly improbable it would be for Paul to be allured into the ranks of the apostles by any human effort. He's saying, I was completely motivated, completely driven by my attention-seeking behavior. I was completely fueled by a desire to gain recognition among my peers. And this turning point happens. This turning point happens where Paul encounters Christ. And in verses 15 to 17, he tells us about that. He shares how God and his grace sets him apart, pulls him apart from birth, he says, and reveals his son, Jesus Christ, to him. And that encounter transforms everything about his motives and his message going forward. How about you? How about you? How about you being willing to reveal the nature of who you once were before you met Christ? Now your story, my story, is highly unlikely that it's going to be dramatic, as dramatic as Paul's story is. But are you willing to share your story? Tell me the story of Jesus and how it's changed your life. How willing are you to expose the ugliness of sin? The ugliness of a sin nature that was driving you towards attention-seeking and people-pleasing to bring the glory of God and the beauty of God to the forefront? How willing are you to expose yourself to your friends at work and to be able to say, I am not a person who is looking for attention anymore. I am not a person who is all about people pleasing anymore. Even asking that question allows you to think through in your mind, many of you are reacting to me right now and say, well, that would expose me. 
because that means that the next time that I behave in a way that is people-pleasing or if I behave in ways of attention-seeking, they're going to see through me. And then they'll know. But this isn't meant to sound threatening or concerning. It, I know that it sounds intellectual. It sounds as if you're going to have to be able to answer every question that someone were to throw at you. Anytime someone asks you a question about your faith, that you're going to have to be de- able to defend it and defend it well. But I want to encourage you this morning, you're actually in a better position than you think that you are in. Look at the life of Paul and realize that you, in your situation, you have no reason to feel intimidated when it comes to standing for your faith. They're saying, I'm not who I once was. Is fear keeping you from sharing your faith? Are you afraid of if you put yourself out there that they will begin, your friends, your family, begin to ask critical questions, that they won't be, be willing to allow you to make any mistakes? They might, but that's okay. I actually believe that you will be able to answer them. You do your very best. We, should ought, we ought to have a plan to do our very best to answer the questions that come at us. You do the very best that you can. But consider this. This is something I read from John Piper this week. I found it very encouraging this week. I want to share it with you. I found it helpful. It keep, keeps you from feeling like all the pressure is on you, that you have to have it all together intellectually, that you have to walk the straight and narrow without any mistakes because you're going to get called out on it. Here it is. Just make sure that your non-Christian friend plays fair with you. Just make sure your non-Christian friend plays fair. Make sure that when they challenge your point of view, your understanding of the reality of the world that we live in, that you probe at and poke at their view of reality as well. When they ask you, how is it that you know that something is true, or how is it that you challenge something as being false, how do you know that? Just push back and say, well, then how do you know that your position is true? How do you know that what you are seeing around you is false? And I think what you will find is that actually as Christians, you have a broader understanding, a more comprehensive view of the world that we live in, a better grasp of reality than you realize that you do. Because there are very few unbelievers, there are very few who do not call Jesus their Lord and Savior of their lives, very few of them who have thought through in any great detail of these questions. They've not formulated a comprehensive view of the reality that governs their thought or their actions or what they get up each morning, each day to do. So make sure that they play fair with you. Let them come down and play on the field with you rather than sitting up at the stands and throwing tomatoes at you on the field. Give evidences to support their arguments. See if God doesn't make himself clearly known. When we look at Paul, he tells us, I'm not who I was. He says, I used to make sure that the things that I said and the actions that I took made me the center of attention. But now, he says, I'm going to make sure that all that I do in my life is going to point that spotlight somewhere else. He's humbled himself before God. The Damascus Road experience, he lies prostrate before the Lord. And the result... When Paul returns to Jerusalem, we find out, we'll read here in just a second, that the name of Jesus Christ has become famous. Let's take a look. Here's his first visit to Jerusalem. We'll pick up in verse 18. 
Then after three years, he says, I went up to Jerusalem. So he took three years to kind of sit out, to be able to uh, allow God to speak into his life. So three years later, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's uh, the Apostle Peter, and remained with him for 15 days, just a couple of weeks. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. He said, in what I am writing to you before God, I am not lying. He said, I was there for two weeks. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Check this out, verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. That spotlight is aimed directly in the face of God, not at the Apostle Paul. Paul says, this persona that I had created used to define me. It was like an old western. When Paul came to town, when he started riding his horse into town, everyone would shutter the doors and run away and the tumblebees would roll by. Paul is here. I don't want no trouble, Paul. His life was once characterized by destructive behavior. And you see this remarkable turnaround in his life when Jesus Christ gets a hold of him. Paul says, I don't do that anymore. That's our third modern takeaway for you this morning. No more. No more destructive behavior. We must reflect on our own lives and identify areas where we engage in destructive behavior. It may not involve physical harm, but destructive actions can manifest themselves in various forms, such as hurtful words and gossip and divisive attitudes. And Paul is giving us here, the action steps are clear, repentance and reconciliation. Paul is seeking reconciliation here with the Jerusalem leaders. And just like he does that, we must seek reconciliation with those that were wrong. We must commit that we are going to commit to constructive behavior rather than destructive. Constructive behavior that builds up the body of Christ. Destructive behavior often shows itself in how we handle conflicts. But instead of seeking revenge or holding grudges, we're supposed to strive for and drive towards peaceful conflict resolution. We've talked about our groups already here this morning. At 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we have a group that is looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Pastor Brian is teaching through that each and every week. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the identifying characteristics or the marks on someone who has the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling inside of them. Will you choose to practice forgiveness? Will you choose to pursue reconciliation saying, I don't harbor bitterness anymore. I don't seek vengeance anymore. That's who I was. That's not who I am now. I've spent a lot of years involved in recovery ministry in various ways. And destructive habits are part of addictions, of, of the way that people harm themselves, and they harm everyone, it seems like, around them as well. So this can be substance abuse, it can be overeating, it can be excessive screen time. A lot of times, one thing, alcoholism just becomes something else. But the reality is, if you're here facing a challenge like that here this morning, We are to seek God's help. We are to choose to say, I don't indulge in destructive behaviors anymore. And they're not always outward facing either. 
We live in a time and a place that we are beginning to understand more and more and more the emotional turmoil that people put on themselves. What's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts is complex. But there's a lot that goes on there with our thoughts and our self-perception and even be able to say that. I want to replace those self-destructive thoughts with a healthy self-image that says, I know that I've been created in the image of God. And God don't make junk, we talked about a few weeks ago. I want to embrace God's love. I want to embrace God's purpose for my life. No more. No more destructive behavior. Paul says, there was a time, there was a place when I was identified and I was known by my destructive behavior, but no more. Paul returns in chapter 2, makes a second journey to Jerusalem. He says this in verse 1, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. I went in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, Yet because of false brothers who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, so to them we did not yield in submission, not even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, he says. I want to make sure that the gospel is clear and preserved so that you can hear it. To appreciate the significance of this visit, you have to begin at verse 1 there and understand its context. Fourteen years have passed since Paul's Damascus Road experience. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, a significant amount of time has gone by. And Paul is returning to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles about the gospel that he has been preaching there among the Gentiles. He is seeking confirmation from the Jerusalem leaders, not because he doesn't believe the gospel that he is preaching is true, but because he wants to make sure that he is there and being in unified uh, nature with the rest of the apostles for the sake of the faith, for the sake that the gospel might be preserved for you, he says. Now we have plenty of time left in this sermon series. To be able to look at, okay, today I'm going to focus on the idea of the freedom that we have in Christ. But, but there is a lot here, and we're going to hear it again, the idea of being circumcised or not being circumcised or living by the law or not living by the law. That, that's going to come through all the rest of Galatians. But when he is here, he's looking for respect and the unity of the faith. He says, that's why I am here. And there's some weird stuff going on. If you didn't catch it in the nuance of how it's written they, they said that there were secret spies that slipped in to spy out our liberty. They are spying out their liberty. They are trying to verify that Titus is uncircumcised. Did you pick that up? They are, there's a Roman bathhouse situation going on here where they're sneaking in and trying to see him take a shower. That's weird. For the sake of the gospel, they want to make sure. They're saying they, that's what their intentions are is what they are saying. But Paul, instead of just coming and swinging, he humbles himself. He says, no, we need to make sure that the gospel is clear, that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for your sake. He seeks counsel 
he understands the value of being in harmony with a larger body of believers. So Paul's earlier life, when Paul looks in the rearview mirror, he sees himself as a persecutor. And because of the transformation that happened, uh, there, there is this danger that Paul could be in, this danger of being a lone ranger Christian, believing that, that only uh, all he needs is himself and God, and he can do that in isolation. He just needs to meet Christ out in the middle of the woods. That's all that he needs. And if you have that approach, you're going to find yourself in a spot that often leads to isolation, often then pushes towards arrogance and a lack of accountability. Fourteen years Paul has been out there. And so our modern day takeaway is to be reminded no more, no more will we be lone rangers, lone ranger Christians. We must examine ourselves in our own lives and see where is it that we have fallen into this trap. Where have we bought into this lie that we can be a lone ranger Christian. The Apostle Paul, this is the Apostle Paul humbles himself with the rest of of the council of fellow believers. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to open yourself up to correction? Are you willing to open yourself up to alignment with the broader body of Jesus Christ? Paul is journeying here from isolation to collaboration. And by doing so, it is a reminder to us that we were never meant to follow Christ in solitude. We were better together. We are better together. And you'll see the response here from the apostles beginning in verse 6. We see Paul's acceptance by the apostles. And from those who seem to be influential, he says, what they, whether they were or not makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. That's a little bit of a dig, guys, or a big dig as the case may be. He said, those who I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, in a similar fashion, as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also for me to my ministry to the Gentiles. So he's just demonstrating that both of these uh, approaches to ministry were valid. Verse 9, and when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who, are the, who seem to be pillars, perceived that the grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. And this was the very thing that I was eager to do. Verse 6 reminds us that within the Christian community, there were these leaders, leaders of high esteem, the pillars of the faith, these apostles, Peter, James, and John. They are recognized. They are recognized as leaders in the church. They were the ones that were at the top of the mountain to see the transformation of Jesus Christ, to, to take on a form of God himself. They saw that. They experienced that with their own eyes. And they give grace to Paul for his ministry and what he is doing among the Gentiles, those who were not of Jewish origin. This acknowledgement lays the foundation for unity and partnership all there within the early church. And then we see this man, Barnabas. Barnabas is in the middle of this whole thing. That name means the son of encouragement. He, he emerges. He's, beacon. He's this beacon of grace and unity in this narrative as we read through it. And his role in Paul's life is, is pivotal. 
If you read over in Acts 9, as we get the idea of what happens to Paul, Barnabas is the one. He's the one who extends the hand of fellowship there as well to newly converted Paul when the rest of the disciples were reluctant to receive him. Paul sees the transformative power that is God's grace in Paul's life. In these verses, we witness Barnabas standing alongside of Paul, affirming the gospel that's been entrusted to him. He extends this right hand of fellowship. We shake hands at the beginning of service. In the church that I grew up in, that was the way that we always raised it. Will you extend the right hand of fellowship to someone this morning? But that's what's happening here. And it's, it's this right hand of fellowship includes this idea of grace being offered. A tangible expression of unity and acceptance. And Paul understood that grace transcends boundaries. It's, it, it transcends and transforms persecutors into proclaimers of the gospel. It builds bridges where walls once stood before. And so now I've been using Paul's first person, but you think about Barnabas in his first person narrative, he would say, we don't do that anymore. We don't divide anymore. We don't build walls anymore. We unite in Christ. This is the conclusion, and, and all of the things point to this last point. This is our modern day takeaway is this. No less, nothing less than more grace. We need more grace, church. The phrase, no less than more grace, is trying to capture the essence of Barnabas' role in Paul's life and his ministry. As I say that, it's trying to signify the idea that we, called, that we too are called to extend grace abundantly, just as Barnabas does. And grace is not constrained to our own preconceptions. Grace breaks down barriers and reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. Barnabas reminds us that grace, when freely given and freely received, directly leads to unity, reconciliation, and a common mission. And I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at it. No more. No more. Nothing less than more grace. As the band comes forward, we'll finish in just a moment. As we reflect here on Galatians 2, this example of Barnabas, reflect in, in the mindset of what this looks like in our own lives. Are we willing to extend grace generously, even to those who we feel like are unworthy of receiving our grace? The Apostle Paul, in his days as Saul, is unworthy of the grace that he is asked to be given. But Barnabas had it together. If Paul was here with us this morning, would we be willing to extend the right hand of fellowship? Would we be willing to do that? Would you be willing to do that? It's our responsibility to extend the right hand of fellowship to believers, unbelievers alike, understanding that God is working in their lives. This happens for us 
locally as well. As, as your pastor, I get to be the ambassador many times in our church. I go representing Randall Church to many pastoral and church functions in the area. And I get to extend the right hand of fellowship. I get to go and offer grace on behalf of our church as we work with other churches in the community to remind ourselves again and again and again is that we are companions here in Western New York. We are not competing with one another. And extend the right hand of fellowship accordingly. As we began this morning, we're exploring the trans. The Apostle Paul, Paul is able to boldly declare, I don't do that anymore. He's turned away from these behaviors. No more people pleasing, no more attention seeking, no more destructive behavior, no more lone ranger behavior. As we pack up this morning, we have to bridge the gap between a letter that was written 2,000 years ago and what we're going to do with it here this morning. The world around us is always changing. It's always morphing and presenting new opportunities, yes, but also new obstacles to sharing our faith. And as things rapidly change, we must hold fast to the unwavering commitment that we have in the gospel that Paul has exemplified. Have you become a people pleaser? Are you afraid of what people think of you? Are you a model of a person who lives out destructive behavior, what needs to change in your life? Paul explains that we are justified by grace and by faith alone, and that's where we find true freedom in this world, to live our daily lives out in confidence. Let us be the ones. Let this church lead the way, that we would go down our faith journey, that we would confidently say, no more, no more. Nothing less than more grace. If you've got that connection card in front of you, it's an opportunity for you to dialogue back and forth. For us to pray with you. You can just write down something on that says, in my life I want no more, nothing less. Something like that and we'll, we'll respond we'll talk to you more. I'll be down here for just a few moments while they sing the last song. What am I going to, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to sit with you. We'll fill out that connection card together. I'll pray with you through your decision that you are attempting to make today. What is it that God would have you to do that you would leave here this morning saying no more of that? That's who I used to be. I want nothing less than more grace. Let's stand and sing as a closing together as we worship the Lord.